Lord, in this service of many activities and commitment. Draw near to us and speak to us as individuals one by one as we wait to hear your voice. Amen. The police academy cadets had come to the end of their training and they were taking their final examinations. Scenarios were set and they were asked how they would respond. Here's one. You are on duty. You're walking down a dark street in a town at night and you hear a noise. A petrol tanker is coming down the road. It's out of control. It's rumbling down the main street. And out of the corner of your eye, you see a milk truck coming down a side street. And a crash is inevitable. Carnage, fire, petrol, milk churns. The drivers must be dead, but you must make sure. You're about to radio for help when you hear someone crying. And peering into the blackness of the river nearby, you see the couple and a dog have been blown into the river. The dog's okay, but the couple are not. You're just about to radio for help when you hear a scream. And a woman silhouetted in a third floor window. She's 10 months pregnant. Think about it. And as you look up at her silhouetted there, she collapses. You're just about to radio for help and you hear the sound of singing. And looking up the burning street, you see a gang of youths taking the opportunity to take a jemmy to the front of the local jeweler's window. Question, what do you do? To which one innovative cadet is said to have written, discard your uniform and mingle with the crowd. And when faced with the political complexities and the social intricacies and the vast inequalities and deprivations and the spiritual apathy and poverty and just plain sin and evil in the world, many Christians take a look at the news and at the life that they live within and answer the question in exactly the same way as the police cadet. What do you do? You discard the uniform and you mingle with the crowd. You opt out because it all seems hopeless. There's so much needs doing, there's so much in the urgent tray that we just don't know where to begin. So like the host at the end of a dinner party looking at a mountain of washing up, you shut the kitchen door and go to bed. You don't know where to start, so you don't start anywhere. But the readings suggest that we can all start somewhere. We can begin where we are and we can begin with one other person. Not everyone is called by God to be a missionary in the sense that we're sent to a far-flung place. Not everyone is called by God to be an evangelist as a special gift of people calling people to faith. But the scriptures are quite clear that we are all, each and every one of us, as baptized followers of Jesus Christ, called to be witnesses, to declare what we know to be true in our own lives, to tell our story, and to share the gospel. I focus upon one rather than the crowd because the gospel focuses upon one more often than the crowd. Notice how Jesus treats each conversation with one person as being supremely important. And notice how often Jesus deals with individuals. 
with Nicodemus, with the woman at the well, with the man born blind, with the woman caught in adultery, etc., etc. So to focus upon each individual isn't a poor option because there's not the crowd there. It's not something you do when there isn't a crowd of people there. To speak to one is a gospel means of sharing faith. Jesus died for all. That's true. But he also died, therefore, for you. In the real sense that if you were the only person in the world who required Jesus Christ to die for you, the story of the scriptures would be exactly the same as they are. If you'd been the only person in the world, the story would be the same. When research has been done, examining how people come to faith, they all say much the same thing. Better than the professional evangelist, the big mission, the televangelist, better even than my best sermon. Come on, wake up. <laughs> better than all these is the friendship given, the genuine interest taken in individuals, in friends, in what's called technically relational evangelism. And I want you to notice, therefore, certain things briefly about this story of Philip and the Ethiopian official. The first is that Philip obeyed God. We know very, very little about Philip, but we glean from elsewhere in the New Testament that he's a wealthy, devout man with four impressive daughters. And I see him in my mind's eye praying and saying, Lord, what, what shall I do? What do you want me to do? And God says, you know that desert road that's miles from anywhere, in the middle of nowhere? I want you to go there. No. You mean the one that barely anybody uses out in the sun all day? That's the one. Well, actually... Do you not want me to go somewhere nice where there's more people and there's nice buildings and a nice pub so I can have a drip? No, I want you to go there. And he's obedient. And in the pacey way in which Luke renders this story for us, we've got no idea how long he stayed there. He could have got there just as the chariot comes by. For all we know, he could have been there a week in a tent. But the dust appears in the distance and the rest of the story proceeds from his obedience that he's there. So be obedient, even to ministries that you don't think are yours. Secondly, Philip knew what he was talking about. He could speak with the Ethiopian because he knew his stuff and he knew the personal reality of it. Do you know you have to know of what you speak. I don't mean by that you all have to be PhDs in theology. One of the things that churches permanently say when sermons like this are preached to them is we need to know more. So we'll postpone actually doing any of this stuff until we've all spent years and years and years and years learning every Bible study and every possible question that anybody else can ask us because we want to know that we've got the answers. Wrong. You know everything that you need to know 
to be a good witness for Jesus Christ. What you now need to do is to implement what you know, not use what you don't know as an excuse for not doing anything. Philip does just that. We can't begin to speak of Jesus, though, if we don't know him. We can't open up the scriptures if we don't know the first thing about what's in them. We can't introduce someone to the living Christ if we don't know he's alive. There's a silly story of a man who fell into the sea and couldn't swim. And he's splashing around and he says, help me, help me. And then he has a big splash next to him. Reminds me of Keena this morning. And he throws his arm round the person who's come next to him. And he says, thank God, he says, you've come to rescue me. Oh, no, says the person who's jumped in. He says, I can't swim either. I saw you drowning. I just thought you might want some company. (laughs) Christian witness isn't like that. One of the wonderful things about the prodigal son story, which is later on in the passage that Abdul read for us, is that the son knows more about the father's love as a returned prodigal than ever he knew about the father's love before he set off. Only when he came to his right mind and returned home did he know the full extent of the love that the family had for him. And very often, it's repentant and returned prodigals who've been round the block a few times who are the best proclaimers of God's love because they're certain of God's forgiveness because they've received it. Philip obeyed God, Philip knew what he was talking about, Philip wanted to tell what he knew. He wanted to tell what he knew. It's one thing knowing something and quite another being willing and ready to share it. You can know the faith deeply and profoundly and keep it completely to yourself. A mother was waiting for her son by the school gates and as her son a sort of carrot-haired, tousled, sort of Dennis the Menace kind of figure in my mind's eye. As he comes out of school, a man who stood next to the mother says, is that your son? And she responds absolutely as every mother would. She says, why, what's he done? (laughs) Nothing, nothing, nothing. He's just, is exactly what we're looking for, for our TV advert. She says, oh. I don't think so. It pays very well. When would you like him? (laughs) And it was dead simple, really. All this tousled carrot top eight-year-old had to do with his freckled face and his toothless grin was to sit at a table looking straight into the camera, pick up a sandwich the size of a doorstep, take a big bite and say with a half-full mouth, English cheddar cheese, I love it. And it was take 11 when they discovered he didn't like cheese. (laughs) You can't advert what you don't like. And relational evangelism isn't just what you know, but who you love. The world knows when we're kidding what we say about Jesus. The best witness for Jesus Christ isn't the one who feels they must say something, but the one who has something to say and longs to say it for love of Jesus 
and a deep concern for the person to whom they're speaking. Fourthly, Philip gets it right. Notice how the Ethiopian chief asks the questions and it's Philip who responds to them. Philip doesn't stand up in the middle of the road and while he's waiting for the chariot, erect a kind of makeshift pulpit and erect a, a cross and put an archway over it and put a big sign that says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. And then, if you like, moves the thing into the middle of the road to stop the chariot from going by. That's not it at all. He doesn't start off the conversation regaling the Ethiopian with his best 101 reasons for why the Ethiopian ought to become a Christian. I well recall a, a message late at night in one of my early appointments as a Methodist minister and a very annoyed voice said about 10.41 evening, come and get one of your members. Uh, one of my members was at 10.40 at night going up the streets of Saltaire, knocking on doors, and when people opened said, hello, I'm from your local Methodist church and God has told me to come and pray for you. Can I come in? Wrong. Not that praying for people's wrong, just wrong. Proper things are rendered improper when done improperly. And the improper ways in which Christians go about declaring the good news of God stop and render neutral the very right and proper ways of declaring the love of God. But it was also insensitive by my church member. Philip's not insensitive. He waits. Presumably the chariot draws up and stops, as was the custom of uh, greeting in that time. Uh, and it's the Ethiopian that makes all the running. Come and sit in my cabin. I'm reading this. What do you think it means? Response. Not always proactivity. Philip gets it right. And finally and fifthly, look what Philip did. He actually entered into a conversation with this man. And the man became a believer. He spoke to him. Well, you say, what's, what's so special about that? Well, nowadays, how often is a clear verbal articulation of the gospel at the heart of our ministry and work. Increasingly today, we tend to prefer oblique responses to the gospel. We see the need for a youth worker, so we do our best to raise funds for that youth worker to be employed. We recognize the older members require such and such, and we try and provide it. We set up counseling services. We take folk on trips. We send food parcels at harvest and Christmas. We open our premises to this and that and the other. And all that's right and proper. But people who have analysed the last 30 or 40 years of Christian witness, particularly in the West, point out that we're moving into a situation as a church where effectively every time we hear a need, we donate something to enable it to happen. But we failed to actually go 
and meet people and talk with them. A minister led a mission weekend at a previous church of his. He'd invited, been invited back to it. And at the end of that weekend, in the evening service, he invited the congregation, some of whom he knew very well and had been a minister there several years ago for several years. He invited them to receive Jesus and two pillars of the church came forward. And he prayed with them as the final hymn went. And then afterwards, because he knew them very well, I don't, let's call them Bert and Bertina. He said, Bert and Bertina, you've been coming to this church for 30 years. He said, I'm thrilled you've come forward, but, but I'm confused. Why did you come forward? They said, nobody had ever asked us before. We've been waiting for years for some to make some kind of response to what we knew was real for us. Which is why, when we send Keener off, hopefully not to Oxford, for the next time we hire a baptistry, though I think given the problems we've had this week, we might buy one, then it might be you next year because it's your time. Nobody ever asked us. Service in Christ's name is wonderful. Without it, mere words can't be fully gospel. But the word needs to be articulated. In the beginning was the word. And words need to be said in word and deed and in word and deed in balance. You cannot pray for a hungry child. You must feed her. However, if ultimately forever you fail to feed her with the bread of life, then ultimately she's unfed. As someone put it, the deed without the word is dumb. The word without the deed is empty. To proclaim the gospel to one person is important. It's the heart of the gospel. It's a positive step in a sea of a confusing and daunting world. When I was at junior school, many, many, many years ago, we used to play a game. Someone would come up to you and say, I'll give you a penny, doubled every day for a month, or I'll give you 10,000 pounds now. And then when you said, give me the 10,000 pounds now, they ran away shouting, well, I haven't got it. Well, we were very small. But you know, you'd be out of pocket. Because one P doubled 30 times throughout the days of a month finishes up being far, far more than 10,000 pounds. Do the maths later on. Each individual is important and in fact the most effective means of reaching everyone with God's love boils down to one person telling another. You shall be my witnesses, said Jesus. What, me? Yeah, you. Pray God that we're not a silent witness. Amen.